Stripping Down Science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith, and also here this week we have Kat Arney. Hi, Kat. Hello. Now, this week it's a fungal farewell to barnacles because scientists have found out how to keep the bottoms of boats in pristine conditions with a little bit of microbiological help, and we'll be finding out how. Also, it's not just humans that strut their stuff on the dance floor to attract a mate. Turns out lizards do it too. And a viral diagnosis in 60 seconds, what you've all been waiting for. Scientists have found out how to identify the cause of a viral infection in under a minute. How it works is coming up shortly. Cat. And also this week we're discussing the science of parasites that invade humans and other animals. We have in the studio here Mark Booth from Cambridge University. He's here to talk about that. We'll also be finding out the importance of clean water in preventing some of these in- infections. And here in studio we have Alex McKee from Surrey University. And we'll also be hearing about a new invention that uses LED technology to disinfect drinking water. And this week, we have got the most awesome kitchen science experiment for you to try. You have to do this. You'll love it. Not just because I've got a chocolate or is it, sorry, a mud-powered clock to give away, but because this is an incredible demonstration. What you're going to need is some lumpy sugar, some pliers and a dark room. How to do it? is on the way. Plus, if you want to win something, we've got a teaser for you as usual. Our mud-powered clock donated by Noisemakers, a bunch of scientists who like to make a noise about, sci- uh, about science. They're on the web, noisemakers.org.uk. If you want to have a go at that, it's what parasitic infection would you treat with quinine? That's the question. For a bonus point, what sparkly drink mixer also contains quinine? The Naked Scientist Podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. Now, a microscopic fungus known as Streptomyces. Streptomyces vermitilis, I always get those wrong, could be the solution to a problem that has dogged sailors for centuries. Well, barnacles are the main problem and they attach to the hulls of boats. Now, they increase friction going through the water and slow down the vessels. You think, well, maybe big deal, but this actually leads to quite significantly increased fuel costs and also then emissions of, of, of carbon-based uh, particles into the environment. So at the moment, there's various anti-barnacle paints that you can use on boats, but they're not really very friendly to the environment. They use copper-based chemicals and these can leach into the sea and poison the marine life. Now, researchers at Gothenburg University in Sweden have managed to extract a compound from this fungus, Streptomyces, and it's actually turned out to be a really powerful barnacle killer. And when they tested it in a paint, they found that it kept boats barnacle-free for up to about a year. Now, this fungus normally lives in the sea and it releases these chemicals as a defence when things are trying to eat it. And they're actually toxic to acorn barnacles and other crustaceans by affecting their nervous system. But the really important thing about this is that the fungus extract is actually only toxic if it's in a paint and stuck on a painted surface. And when the paint's dissolved in the seawater, um, the poison doesn't appear to be activated. So it's actually not harmful to the uh, the rest of the sea environment. So it shouldn't have the same problems that the copper-based anti fouling paints exactly, that are used at the moment. Exactly, it's much more natural, it's much more environmentally friendly and hopefully just as effective. Is so, it going to be cheap enough to encourage people to use it though? Because that's a critical thing, isn't it? If you can buy the copper-based stuff and it's dirt cheap by comparison, because this stuff isn't cheap anyway, but this one's very, very, very expensive. Well, at the moment it's not a commercial product and the researchers are working to try and turn it into a commercially viable product. But um, in theory it looks like it's really effective and could be really good. 
Well, what about this then, making light of viral diagnosis? How often do you go to the doctor and, uh, and they say, it's a virus, we think, then uh, the only way to find out if it really is a virus is you take some blood samples or some swabs from a patient and then several weeks go by, which is the time it takes to diagnose the infection, and by the time you get the result, you're either dead or you've recovered. It's not really very useful. Well, scientists are looking at way around that problem, and there's a group of researchers at the University of Georgia led by a guy called Ralph Tripp, and they're using a trick of the light, quite literally, because what they found out how to do is if you stick down some of the nucleic acid, the genetic material of a virus, the RNA or the DNA, onto a metal surface, shine laser light at it at near-infrared wavelengths, the laser light bounces off the nucleic acid and it scatters and you get a very characteristic scatter pattern dependent upon what's on that surface. And so every single surface or every single DNA or RNA molecule has its very own unique scatter pattern. So what you can do is to use this to pull out a characteristic fingerprint for that particular virus and identify it. Now that was known that you might be able to do that, but the problem people had with it was that the amount of scattering that you got from this small amount of DNA was tiny. You just couldn't see it. So what the researchers have now discovered is that if you add some tiny silver nano rods to the metal surface that you're sticking the genetic material down to, when the laser light comes in, it now bounces back and it's 100 million times brighter, which means that it will now work with standard amounts of DNA and RNA that you can find in, say, clinical samples. So that's the next step for them. And they're saying they're now within the realms of being able to make some kind of handheld detector, a bit like what you, what you would have seen on, say, Star Trek a few years ago, where people waved some kind of probe over patients and you could get a diagnosis well they're saying this could even be used at airports because we're worried about the next flu pandemic you could have something that people would wave over people getting on and off of airplanes you could tell if they were incubating something very very fast this gives a, a result in under 60 seconds so you could test snot or blood or something like that that's the oh, next step nice. to see if this will work with clinical samples and that's what they're doing oh lovely a uh, completely different story now um, about lizards. I love this story. Uh, lizards, you normally think of them, you know, playing it cool, blending into the background, trying not to be eaten by predators. But sometimes lizards do need to be noticed, mainly when they're trying to attract a mate. And um, new research into lizards has actually found that the animals shout if they're trying to get noticed against really busy, leafy backgrounds. But rather than shouting audibly, they actually shout visibly. So there some researchers have been studying anole lizards, and they usually signal that a territory's theirs and that they're here and, you know, they're looking lizard sexy uh, by bobbing their heads up and down and they lounge can, lizards yeah and they they can inflate their throats to display a large pink pouch which apparently the lady uh, lizards sorry go. what was that again a large pink pouch it drives the lady lizards wild um but it can be really hard to notice this uh if they're against a, a background of moving foliage and researchers from the university of california have been filming these lizards in puerto rico and they found that if they're against really vigorously waving backgrounds the lizards put a lot more effort into their visual display they they bow up their heads a, a lot more they display their pouches more and lash their tails around and it's the first time this kind of amplification of behaviors been noticed really in an animal is that because the male lizard thinks that the female won't be able to see or is it because it knows that she can't see is it is it thinking the background is moving a lot therefore i must do this more or is it because it's not getting some kind of subtle cue back from the female I think no that's not that's not either. entirely clear, um, but the the assumption is it's because the background's changing that they're they're upping their game. So it's a bit like maybe in a dark disco, dancing more and more frantically to attract some attention. Um, but the lizards uh, probably need to strike a balance between being showy enough to be noticed and actually not getting eaten by predators. So it's a very interesting example of of adaptation for what they've done. Well, I'm absolutely hopeless at dancing. 
so I won't actually try and compete with the lizards. But an interesting thing came out of the, the US this week. It's a guy called Peter Pfeiffer, and we're all trying desperately to be better for the environment, and there's a big push to try and run cars on LPG, liquid petroleum gas, because this is thought to be more environmentally friendly. The problem with LPG is that you have to have a massive great tank in the back of your car. It often takes up the entire boot space of the car, and it runs at a very high pressure, so the tank has to be very heavy, and because it's so heavy and high pressure, you can't form it into a convenient shape like the fuel tank of a present car, which is obviously very low pressure. So it's really hard to plumb it into the car in a convenient way. Well, if you could store the gas at a much lower pressure, then you'd get around some of those problems. And that's what Peter Pfeiffer and his team at the University of Missouri-Columbia have managed to do. And what they've done is to be even more environmentally friendly because they've used leftover corn on the cob. Now, when you eat a corn on the cob, you obviously get that hard chunk left in the middle that you can't do much with. But it's very carbon-rich. So if you collect all of these leftover corn cobs and you bake them, first of all with some phosphoric acid, which activates them, and then you shove them into a furnace, heat them to 450 degrees C, and then dry them out at 160 degrees C for about three hours, wash the result and compress it into a sort of briquette, like a charcoal block, what you get is this very rich carbon matrix, which is full of tiny pores and channels. And if you pump in methane, you can get it to soak up 180 times its own volume in methane, but at only a pressure of 500 psi. Now, 500 psi sounds like a lot, but in fact, a normal LPG tank in your boot would be 3,600 psi, so it's a seventh of the pressure. And this means you can store large amounts of gas in a very small area and make much lower pressure tanks, which means that they can be much more conveniently plumbed into a car. And you can get the gas out easily as well and... Do you get the same amount of gas? Well, that's what they're saying. You can pack a large amount of gas in because it leaches out nice and gently and you can run your car on it. They're actually testing this. They've got a a road testing pickup truck, which they've been running (laughs) since October, to see how it performs. Obviously, they're looking at miles per gallon and that kind of thing. The Naked Scientists, supported by the Wellcome Trust. Time now for a bit of kitchen science, where this week, Dankid scientists Helen Scales, Dave Ansell and our helpers Thomas and Isaac are going to be bringing some sweetness and light to a house in Cottenham, and they're going to do it with nothing more, we're told, than a bag of sugar and a pair of pliers. Sounds intriguing. Hi, Helen. Hello there, and welcome to Cottenham, where we've come this week to kitchen science. With me, I have Dave, who's going to help us through this experiment today, which we want you to do at home. So, Dave, tell us, what are we doing today? We're going to be making some strange effects in the dark. Strange effects in the dark. How exciting. Well, luckily, I have with me here two fantastic volunteers who are going to help us with this experiment. So, if you could just give us your name and how old you are. First of all... Hello, I'm Isaac, and I'm ten... You had to think about that carefully, didn't you? <laughs> Thanks for coming along. And and you are? I'm Thomas and I'm 10 as well. You're both 10, so that's quite easy. Fantastic. Well, thanks ever so much for coming along. Um, I first have to just ask you, because we're scientists and we like to know, what is it about science that you like, Isaac? Everything. Perfect answer. I hope your science teachers are listening. Good answer. How about you, Thomas? Is there anything particularly you like about science? I like the way there's so many things you can do with science. Fantastic. We have two very budding scientists with us today. And talking of scientists, we've got one right here next to me, Dave. So what have we got in front of us here? It looks like we've got a bit of a fairly simple setup. So this is definitely something we want our listeners at home to join in with. So tell us what we've got. Well, what you want for today is you want some sugar lumps or actually even some of the... If you have a bag of sugar and it gets slightly damp, you get lumps of sugar in the top of it. That would be fine. Uh, either that or you can, you can do it with things like polo mint, but it doesn't work quite as well and it's a bit more difficult. You also want a pair of pliers. Excellent. Yeah, we can hear those going. And a very, very dark room. 
A very dark room. Okay, we don't have a very dark room at the moment, but we promise that by the time we come back later in the show, we will have been... Am I right? We have to sit in the dark for quite a while first. That's right. You're going to have to get your eyes used to the dark. So you have to sit in the dark for at least two or three minutes so that your eyes get really, really sensitive and can see very, very faint light. Fantastic. So, Isaac, are you scared of the dark? No. Thomas? No. Excellent. Otherwise, if you were afraid of the dark, we'd have to send you outside. So, Dave, once we've turned the lights out and got our eyes used to the dark, what do we do next? All you've got to do is take the pliers and grab one of the sugar lumps, one of the lumps of sugar, and crush it and see what you can see. Okay, so sit in the dark for a while and crush some sugar. It sounds pretty simple. The question is, what do we think might happen? Thomas? I think that... I think that's... I'm not really sure at all which will happen, actually. I don't think I know either. I'm quite intrigued. Isaac, have you got any ideas at all what might be happening? I'm thinking that what will happen is um, that the sugar lump that we've crushed will glow. Now, that's a pretty way-out idea. How exciting. Well, I guess we will just have to wait and see, but we also want to know if any of you at home have got any ideas or just give it a go and see what happens. And if you want to ring us and tell us what happens, the number is, as always, 08459 25 or you can get on the internet and send us an email, chris at nakedscientist.com. But for now, we'll go back to you guys in the studio. Well, thank you very much, guys. So just in case you missed that, to take part in this week's Kitchen Science, what you need is some lumps of sugar. You either need a proper sugar lump or the lumps you find in an old and slightly damp bag of sugar at the back of that cupboard, a bit like mine at home. Then you get some pliers, you need a big bowl and a very, very dark room. And then you get your eyes accustomed to the dark before you do it, get your lump of sugar and crush it really hard with the pliers and then tell us what you see. Cat. I can't wait to find the answer to that one. We're asking for answers tonight on our teaser. We want to know which parasitic infection is treated with quinine and also, for the bonus point, what sparkly drink mixer also contains quinine. We've had loads of right answers in so far. We've had Betty from Northampton, she's right. Andy Kendrick heading to Harlow. I hope you're not driving while you're on the phone. Also right. Uh, Alan in Barhill and Connor in Tillingham, um, half right. And uh, we've got a nice one from Rowena here in Malden, who is along the right lines. If you want to have a go at our teaser, get calling in now 08459 25 or text us 07786 201960. You can email us chris at nakedscientist.com and if you're right, you'll go in the hat. And on the way, we'll be finding out what the human bladder's like, because that's what Jason Flakes is wondering. Uh, ben in Norfolk wants to know whether mobile phones can affect fuel pumps and also a little bit about... Uh, quicksand and quick milk and quick mud by the look of from someone in Alaska. Laying the facts bare, the naked scientists. The naked scientists, Dr. Chris and Dr. Cat, coming up in a second, the science of parasites with Mark Booth first off from Cambridge University. But first of all, Cat, question for you. This is from Jason Flakes. He says, love the show and I listen to it on the way to work. I've got a question. Is the human bladder like a sponge or more like a balloon in the way it holds liquid? The answer is it's more like a balloon. It is a bladder, um, yeah, made of uh, mostly smooth muscle that holds all your wee inside. It has this sort of receptive relaxation, doesn't it? So the more you pump into it, the bigger it gets. Exactly. A very clever thing. But it's not good. Am I right in thinking it's not good to hold on too long to go to the loo? Mm, no, that's just what my mum told me? Well, you're encouraged actually to train your bladder because the more you stretch it, the more it gets used to holding things. So if you can train it to, I don't mean get to bursting point, but if you can train it to so that you don't need to go too soon, it means you've got more control later because it means the muscles that hold the wee in, especially for ladies, because as women get older, they find it harder to do this, uh, are much, much better toned and this can mean that you don't leak 
So it's better to hang on rather than going all the time. It's good practice, but but obviously you shouldn't end up getting to the point where you're absolutely bursting to go because that might be pathological. And you might wet yourself. Here's another one, Chris. OK, we have a question here from Stuart. And he says, um, why does cheese make you sweat? You know, sometimes you have a bit too much, especially cheddar. You can feel sweat creep across your brow or is it just me? No, I think he's got a point. The reason I believe this is because there is something which has been known about by pharmacologists, people who study drugs for a long time, called the cheese reaction. Because when they first invented a certain class of antidepressant called monoamine oxidase inhibitors, they block up this enzyme, monoamine oxidase, which breaks down things that have got amines or nitrogen-containing groups on them. Now, the cheese reaction that people had when they were on these drugs and ate cheese was that they had very high blood pressure, their heart went very, very fast, and those are all actions of adrenaline. Now, that's because cheese has got these things in it that behave a bit like adrenaline, monoamines, and one of them, the, the key one, is called tyramine. So I wonder, with that question, whether what's going on is you eat a bit of cheese and it sort of stimulates your nervous system, the part of the nervous system that adrenaline would normally stimulate, a little bit, and sweating is triggered by adrenaline. We do it when we're nervous, and so I think what's happening is that you have a surge of this adrenaline-like chemical in the bloodstream and it switches on your sweat glands a bit, and therefore you sweat. It's the same chemicals that can stimulate migraines, isn't it, in, in some people, tyramines? Allegedly. Now, this one's from Ben. He's age 10, he's in Norfolk Cat, says, how do mobile phones affect fuel pumps, if at all? Um, as far as I'm aware, the answer is they don't. Um, it was a bit of a, a scare, the one worry that mobile phones could in some way activate an explosion from f fuel fumes, but in fact there's no evidence that they do. And finally, last one for you, Chris. Um, it's a question from Anita, and she says, could you confirm why chicken eggs sometimes contain blood in them? I thought they were unfertilised. Why do they have blood in them? No, they are. Um, the way you get this blood in chickens, she's right. To a certain extent, you can get some red dots in chicken eggs because they've been fertilised, but it's perfectly possible to get red dots and a little bit of blood in, in eggs if they're not fertilised, and that's because the egg gets made in the chicken's oviduct and it descends down the oviduct and has the shell added round the outside. So the constituents of the egg are added in the oviduct and then it gets the shell wrap round it. Now as it's going down the oviduct sometimes a little blood vessel in the wall of that oviduct from the mother chicken can burst and a little bit of blood can spill out and get inside the material that's being laid down in the egg and so you get a little blood spot in the egg which then gets wrapped up in the shell. Most egg producers shine lights through the egg in order to see if that's happened and they try and weed them out and in fact brown eggs are easier to weed out than, sorry, pale coloured eggs are easier to weed out than the brown ones which is why you tend to see it more often in brown eggs but it's not in any way pathological it's just a, a tiny trace of blood so you can eat those they're harmless you're listening to the naked scientists with dr chris and dr cat if you've got any questions that you want to ask us about science medicine and technology you can uh, ring in you can text us you can email us today in particular we're talking about parasites and in studio we're just about to come to mark booth from cambridge university to talk about um, parasitic worms and schistosomes and things and we also have alex mckee from the university of University of Surrey to talk about the problems uh, of getting fresh drinking water to certain populations. Now we've been talking this evening about the possibility of parasites and parasite infections and I'm very pleased to welcome to the show this week Mark Booth who's a researcher at Cambridge University. Hi Mark. Hello. Now you're a parasitologist so why the hell did you get into studying parasites? Did you get some sort of horrendous worm infection as a youngster that got you interested in this or something? No, it's much more academic than that. In fact, I was a, an undergraduate student at Imperial College in London and part of my third year course was all about parasites and I thought, oh, these are rather fascinating creatures. 
But in particular, um, you, you focus on this thing, schistosomiasis, and we'll come to that in just a second. But um, why are parasites so important in terms of, um, well, we, we say that if you've got lots of parasites around, you must have a healthy population. Is that true? Probably not. Lots of parasites certainly are a big problem. Um, nowadays, the, there is a change in people's thinking that maybe some parasites may be good for you, but a lot of parasites certainly bad for you. Now, one of the focuses of Mark's work is this thing, schistosomiasis. It's also called Bilharzia. Now, it's a highly infectious pathogen. We couldn't possibly bring it into the studio. It's a major problem in Africa. But uh, part of its life cycle is spent in freshwater snails before it gets into humans. So what, uh, what we asked Mark to do was to go around with me at his lab at Cambridge University on Friday and show us some of the snails that carry it. And this is, this is what we found out. So we're standing in the Schistosomiasis Research Lab and we're outside the snail room, which is where we keep snails that we use to perpetuate the life cycle of Schistosome mansoni worms. You'll see right in front of us there's a door with a very orange and red biohazard sign on it. That's because the snails in here are infected, and if we were to put our fingers in the tanks where we're keeping the snails, we would also be infected with the worms. Should we have a look at them? Let's go. Well, there, there are literally rows and rows of tanks full of snails. It's quite dark in here, Mark. Yes, it's deliberately kept dark because the snails tend to shed the parasite when there is bright light. So we keep them artificially under dim conditions, and then when we want to shed them, we take them out of the tanks we see in front of us, put them into a small beaker, and shine a very bright light on them. Why should the parasite want to come out when you put light on the snail? That's because under natural conditions, the snail tends to shed the parasite when there are people around, and people come into contact with the water during daylight hours. So it helps if the parasite is shed when there are people around and when the light is very bright. So can we have a, an actual look at some of these snails? Because they, they, they're quite small, aren't they? They are indeed. These are Biomphalaria snails that transmit Schistosoma mansoni. So if you look inside the tank, you'll see that they are very small, just uh, maybe a centimetre wide. Uh, these are freshwater snails. You'll see also in the tank there's some vegetation, and these are what the snails feed on. So the larvae come out of the snail, burrow through my skin, get into me, and where do they go in my body? Well, they get passively circulated through the blood system. So essentially, when they penetrate the skin, they locate a blood vessel, and then they're circulated by the heart into the lungs. And then they elongate and mature in the lungs, and then they're carried back through the heart, and then in the liver they sexually mature, and they actually end up in the mesenteric veins, which are the veins that link the liver to the gut. That's where they couple and start producing the eggs. And how do the eggs find their way back out of the human so that they can find another one of those snails? Well, there's a very good reason why the worms are located in the mesenteric veins and that's because they're very close to the gut and when the eggs are laid by the female worm they don't have very far to go they just have to cross the gut wall and then they're passed out with fecal matter. So safe handling of sewage, sewage contaminated water is absolutely critical in breaking this life cycle and, and preventing this from happening? Indeed, a high standard of hygiene is required. Is it, is it feasible to think we could stop people becoming infected with these things then? There are a number of schemes available um, there is a very safe and widely used drug called Praziquantel, which is used in major intervention programs. The problem with Praziquantel is it doesn't have any vaccinating properties that we know of. So what happens is that when people have been treated, they go out next day, they conduct themselves as normal, and they get reinfected. The way to stop people being infected over the long term is to change their environment and also their habits. Well, that was us in Mark's lab a couple of days ago. So, Mark, um, it's a big problem, schistosomiasis. How many people would you think worldwide are, are troubled with this? There's an estimate that about 200 million people are infected, but maybe 600 million people live in an area where they're at risk of infection. 
So it, it is a pretty major problem. It is indeed. Um, but how does that f- sort of compare with other major parasite infections worldwide? It's somewhere in the middle of the rankings. If we look at some other parasites like the roundworm, like Ascaris, uh, that maybe infects about a billion people worldwide. Uh, hookworms, 800 million. Uh, Trichuris infections, a few hundred million as well. So these, you mentioned some of these other worms and things. Huh? They, they actually get spread, again, via fecal-oral. So in other words, people picking up things in the environment, don't they? Indeed, yes. Uh, they're also called soil-transmitted helminths, and people become infected when they ingest contaminated soil, essentially. They don't just have to eat them, do they? Because don't some of these parasites, rather like you were saying with Schistosomiasis bilharzia, they can actually drill holes in, in skin and get in that way. Don't some of these other things get in like that? Yeah, the hookworms uh, particularly are good at that. The larvae um, are shed uh, on, on the soil, and they penetrate skin when people stand on top of them. So tell us a little bit about that, because th- th- these are worms. So how do they end up going through your skin, but migrate to the gut subsequently? They're able to penetrate the skin using uh, proteases, which are a chemical that actually melt the tissue away, and then they get passively circulated um, through the blood, and they will end up in the lungs, and then often they're coughed up. Um, when they're coughed up, they're then passed, they're swallowed, and that's how they end up in the gut. And then once they, they get into the gut, how do they survive there? They seem to do it very well. They can live for many years. Uh, this is one of the great questions that have been asked by researchers, you know, how do they exist uh, in that situation? But, but do so they long? eat our food then, these, these hookworms? Uh, hookworms don't. They, yeah, sorry, hookworms will penetrate the gut lining and will actually drink uh, blood from capillaries. And I suppose that you, you probably started to talk about one particular important thing here, which is that all these things manage to get in through skin. They go in the bloodstream. They live in lungs or other tissues and they make their way to a final resting place, usually in the gut. So how do they escape the immune system? Why doesn't our immune system attack them and stop them? There is, again, a very good question. Uh, there's a, a very great many deal of researchers interested in answering this question. Essentially, it comes down to very sophisticated array of evasion strategies. Um, they can, some parasites will actually coat themselves in antigens of the host so they become almost invisible. Some parasites live inside the cells of the host, so they're essentially not seen by the immune system. And some parasites will subvert the immune system of the host to the parasite's advantage. But haven't some people said that's really, really useful? Because if we can understand how they do that, then we might be able to use this to our advantage to switch off allergy and things. Yes, uh, as I said at the beginning, uh, there's now a change in people's perceptions of what parasites are doing. And it's been suggested that some parasites may be good for you because they do downregulate some of our more harmful immune responses. And what about some of these other parasites that we see that cause horrible things like elephantiasis, people with very swollen limbs? What's going on there? Uh, elephantiasis is specifically caused by a filarial nematode. And the worms, they live in lymph nodes and they cause blockage of the lymph nodes and they don't allow lymph fluid to drain properly. And when that happens, you get a, a, a process known as lymphedema starting, which generally affects the lower um, limbs. How do you catch it in the first place? Um, filariasis is transmitted by mosquitoes of the Culex uh, genus, and the mosquito will bite and then inject uh, a larval form of the uh, filarial worm, which will then mature and migrate to the lymph nodes. Now, you showed me the other day uh, a picture of someone with a rather nasty sort of lesion on their hand, which had a white worm coming out of it and a matchstick winding the worm up. What was that? Oh, that was a guinea worm, or dracunculus. Um, that's a, also a nematode. That was a female worm that I showed you, and she's emerging from the skin of that person to lay her eggs and she's formed a blister which is very irritable and uh, so the person would have gone to water to try and uh, soothe the pain on their skin and then the worm will emerge and lay her eggs in the water. So the, the, the worm makes the person go into water effectively and then this causes the blister to rupture, the worm escapes. Correct. 
And how does the person or another person then recatch that worm or catch a new parasite that way? Uh, the eggs will be ingested by a very small crustacean called a cyclops. It's a copepod. And then when people drink unfiltered water, they ingest the copepod and then the eggs uh, emerge when the copepod dies and then they mature into adult worms. Is this something that we might be able to, to stop? Because these things are pretty common. You've got lots of people swimming, fishing, using all this water in places like Africa. And it sounds like it's going to be a self-perpetuating cycle forever. Well, guinea worm is one of the few success stories we have against parasitic infections. From a, a, a rate of a, a prevalence of about three and a half, or a, a number of people were infected, there was about three and a half million just a few years ago. In 2004, the annual number was uh, 16,000. So that, that's a massive reduction, isn't it? It is, and it's, it's because of the mode of transmission. It's rather straightforward to intercept by just putting muslin cloths over uh, basins and jugs, for example. So education's everything in this. Indeed, yeah. That's Mark Booth from Cambridge University. If you want to ask him any questions about parasites and how they affect the body, then give us a call, 08459 You can text in on 07786 or email chris at In a second, we'll be talking about the importance of clean water and also we'll be finding out about a new invention that could clean up water and get rid of some of those infections that Mark was talking about using new ultraviolet LED technology. Cat. We've just heard from Mark about uh, the way that parasites are spread by people basically defecating in rivers and, and not having good hygiene. But there are other forms of water pollution that can have similar, uh, similarly devastating effects on populations. Now, to find out a bit more, naked scientist Anna Lacey went to speak to PhD student Holly Barkley about how a bit of muscle power could be the key to cleaning up our waterways. The river can may look a bit murky here down by the weir today. But this pales to nothing if you compare it to some of the rivers and lakes elsewhere in the world. The problem many lakes are facing is something called eutrophication. And this occurs when fertilisers or raw sewage run off into the water and flood the lake with nutrients. Now microscopic plants like algae need these nutrients and start feasting on them. And this allows them to multiply incredibly quickly, forming a thick green layer of slime on top of the surface of the water. Now this blanket of algae blocks out sunlight and kills all the plants underneath the surface and also then in turn kills the fish and invertebrates that rely on those underwater plants. So really, eutrophication can be potentially devastating for lake environments and diversity. But there seems to be hope on the horizon. I went along to the Aquatic Ecology Lab in Cambridge to speak to researcher Holly Barkley, who's been looking at how freshwater mussels could be the answer to choked up lakes in China. Okay, we're now in the laboratory and uh, going into the controlled temperature room, it says, a nice big label on the front. It's like a huge fridge, and uh, what we've actually got in here is a load of shells down the side, lots of little bowls with water, and uh, mussels inside, various sizes, and and sort of smells a bit like a fish shop. But, But Holly, can you just describe what this huge mussel is we're looking at here? Yes. Well, here we've got the Chinese giant mussel. Um, We've got an individual here that's about 20 centimetres long and it's closed its shell tightly because we're handling it. But um, in the wild, in in the bottom of the lake, you would find it with a muscular foot which comes out of the shell and anchors it in the sediment at the bottom of the lake. And you'd have siphons here which draw in water and then they take out the particles so the algae is taken out of the water column and more light can get through. Okay, and then that means that all the big plants living underneath the surface of the water can get light and grow and then fish can live under them and that kind of thing. Yes, that's right. And um, it's important to remember that 
we're looking at the problem of having too much algae in the in the lake and this is what we're using the mussels to help us with but there are other pollutants also in the lake which the mussels don't really help with such as pesticides or heavy metals from factories um so these are problems that need some kind of other solution to deal with but if there are all these pollutants coming into the lake is this not going to kill the mussels when they start filtering it um, well, it depends very much on the mussel species, but luckily the one we've chosen to work with in China is particularly hardy, so hopefully not, but we'll wait and see. And of course, people not only like studying mussels, but also eating them, and it occurs to me that if people in China wanted to eat these rather large, tasty-looking mussels, that they might then be eating pesticides. Is, is that going to be a problem? Uh, well, that is true, and certainly we have had a problem with the project in China with Chinese people taking them out and eating them and so one solution to that is to try and make growing the mussels economically productive and useful for the local people and one way of doing that is to we're initiating trials of culturing pearls freshwater pearls so how do you go about doing that well basically you put in a seed for the pearl into the shell of a live mussel and if you think of the shiny inner surface of lots of shells this is a smooth surface which is produced by the mussel to smooth out irritants and things that would damage the mussel so if you put in this seed pearl and then the inside of the shell grows over the pearl and produces a nice shiny surface oh so in the end people can just you know harvest the mussels and rather than selling them for food they can just take out the pearls and sell those instead yes exactly and while, and meanwhile while the mussel is growing with the pearl inside it it's doing all these other things like filtering out the water well, I mean, this sounds absolutely incredible. I mean, are we going to be using this kind of thing in the UK? Because, of course, it's not just China um, that's got problems with polluted lakes from, you know, agricultural waste and, and fertilisers. Yes, well, the idea is there, and, it, you know, I think there needs to be more experiments before we can work out whether it really is effective. Um, obviously, another problem is that it's all very well to put these mussels in and filter out the algae, but we also need to deal with the runoff from farmlands or putting raw sewage into the water so you know so you need to deal with the source of the pollution as well as the outcome of it i think the solution this is a very nice solution but it's not quite that simple in real life that was cambridge university's holly barkley speaking to anna Lacey about how the humble freshwater mussel could clear up eutrophic lakes in china chris Thanks, Kat. To the Naked Scientists with Dr Chris and Dr Kat. This week we're talking about the science of parasites and the science of clean water. Coming up in just a second, Alex McKee from the University of Surrey will be talking about how we make sure people in less developed countries have access to clean drinking water. Big response to our teaser this week. We're asking you, and you could win yourself, an amazing mud-powered clock. It's been provided by Noisemakers. They're a bunch of scientists who like to make science fun and interesting. You can find out about them on the web at noisemakers.org.uk. We're asking you what parasite infection is treated with... With quinine. And for a bonus, can you tell us what fizzy mixer also contains quinine? Phone number 08459 25 2000. Email chris at nakedscientist.com or text in on 07786 201960. So far, congratulations to Doris, who is listening in Norfolk. Mike's in Steeple. Ruth's in uh, Ho- Hoveton. Bill is in Cherry Hinton. Ben and Heather are listening in Soham. Joan Carter's listening in Swaffham. Andrew's in Cambridge. And Ellen's listening in Beds. And you've all got the answer right. And you're in the, in the hat so far. Laying the facts bare, the Naked Scientists.
It's the Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Kat, and this week we're talking about the science of parasites, and uh, Mark Booth's in the studio with us, along with Alex McKee, who we'll be talking to shortly. Mark, quick question for you. This has come from uh, Dominic, who says, he's Californian living in Italy and listens to us on our podcast. That's nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. He says, my Italian mother-in-law hates cats. She said she could never bear to see her grandchildren playing near them. She swears they're full of diseases and they infect kids with all sorts of maladies, and she says this with the authority of a paediatrician. I think she's kittyophobic. Could you let me know the real deal? No, she's entirely right. Um, cats do have toxoplasma. Uh, in humans, uh, if you become too close to your cat, you may contract toxoplasma. In most people, it's fairly mild. It's definitely a problem in pregnant women or in those who are immunocompromised. But she's pretty wise, I think, to keep them away from the cat. Thanks, Mark. I've also got a question uh, phoned in by Brian in Chelmsford. He said he works in a garage, and uh, Kat pointing out about mobile phones not being used on forecourts. He says it's a criminal offence. must be switched off because it could spark and cause an accident if dropped. Actually, this is a very contentious point, Brian. Although the law says you shouldn't use mobile phones on forecourts, this has been subjected to a somewhat scientific investigation. Um, in America, most of these situations uh, which occur, um, the reason you're told not to use a mobile phone on a forecourt, is because you can get a little spark which can ignite the fuel that people are putting into their cars. Now, in America, the system is that you can lock the filler so that it continues to fill the tank until obviously the back pressure tells the gun to shut off. Now, what a lot of women seem to do is that they hop in and out of the car when they're filling their tank up. And some investigators have found that actually the friction between the woman's trousers and the car seat leads to the women acquiring a static charge so that then when they return to the filler handle, they earth and discharge onto it because it's at a different potential to them. And this creates the spark that then ignites the fuel. And you can get fuel tank fires that way. Uh, the, the mobile phone situation, the only way you could conceivably make a spark with a mobile phone is if the battery came out and suddenly disconnected the connection at the time that you were filling a car. And the likelihood is, therefore, extremely low. You know, why are you not allowed to have a shave on a forecourt? I've got a shaver in my car. Why can't, no one says to me I'm not allowed to shave on a forecourt. So, uh, you know, the same risk is, is, is there. It's anything with a battery in it. So I think we're probably being a bit unfair on mobile phone users. But anyway, there you go. I'm intrigued that it could be someone's trousers causing an electrical spark. Anyway, on a, a different topic, we're joined in the studio here by Alex McKee from the University of Surrey. And she's looking at the way that uh, different communities around the world get hold of fresh water. And this is obviously a real challenge for, uh, for different communities. We've just heard earlier how things like guinea worms can be got rid of simply by filtering the water. But um, there, are, there are other problems with other populations. So, Alex, tell us a bit more about these kind of populations that you've been looking at. Um, well, I mean, I tend to look specifically at community water supplies, uh, that'd be um, isolated communities uh, uh, far away from urban centres, people who might have problems with fresh water resources. Uh, my speciality particularly is with small islands who have um, particular problems that are very, very vulnerable to climate change, um, natural disasters. They're quite economically isolated as well, so they don't necessarily have the same kind of resources available to them as uh, larger countries do and um, a lot of their physical problems mean that they need some of the higher technology solutions. Um, traditional treatment solutions aren't always a, a viable option, particularly for islands which are archipelago uh, archipelagos sorry, and um, have a lot of sea-line drinking water. So how, mm. how do these islands generally get their drinking water? Where, where do you get water from if you're on an island? 
Oh, well, I mean, there's lots of different types of islands. So uh, you could have volcanic islands, which will have a lot of groundwater. So you'd get them get water in the traditional ways that you would in the UK or America, etc. A borehole and you would pump it up and treat it to, to whatever specification the country required. Um, but for archipelagos, which are, you know, very porous, there's a lot of saltwater intrusion. And what generally happens is that you'll have a little globe of fresh drinking water. Well, fresh water, so it's not drinking water yet, but fresh water, which will sit on top of the saline uh, saline seawater, um, which comes from rain. And that's just due, due to the density of the water. It, it's lighter, so it just sits on top. Um, but this is obviously very vulnerable. Um, and one of the biggest problems with small islands is that, unlike in the UK, when we can have a catchment, which is protected by fences from animals, from humans and things like that, on small islands, you're actually living on top of your catchment. So you're constantly polluting it. Um, uh, sanitation is a big problem because because of uh, the the, the, the geology of the island as such so so you're having to use much more treatment than than you would have to in many other countries and what are some of the solutions that islands are using to this kind of problem well i mean uh, so, uh, one of the solutions that's uh, used in the caribbean which is where i do the majority of my research is uh, reverse osmosis um which is not an ideal solution to drinking water to tr- treatment because it's energy intensive you need um a high amount of skills to be able to make sure that it's operating properly and it, and it's expensive um but what reverse osmosis basically does is that you've got a porous membrane with very very small pores and it's uh water is pressurized which pushes through the water molecules and keeps the the, the salt and the majority of other impurities behind um so that way you get actually very very clean drinking water so the the quality of the water is Expensive, but obviously the problem is is that it's uh, excellent. Sorry, but the problem is obviously that it's expensive. You mentioned that you went to the Caribbean. I did. I'm <laughs> a very a lucky nice, girl. <laughs> a nice job. Which islands in particular have you been studying? Um, well, I needed to do a broad range of islands to 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 have a good look at what the kind of challenges that they face. So I did uh, the Saint Lucia, Guadeloupe, uh, Cayman Islands, and the Bahamas, which was fabulous. <laughs> that sounds like a nice PhD project. Mm. Anyway, we're going to be finding out in a minute about a different way of purifying water. But if you have in the last few minutes of the show any questions about parasites, parasitic infections, uh, ways to to clean up water or to purify water. Uh, We've had a couple of people sending in their own ideas for how you might clean up water. So um, get calling in now, 08459 25 2000, text us 07786 201960 and you can email us at chris at nakedscientist.com. And it's uh, the same contact details if you want to have a go at our teaser, which is what parasite infections infected with quinine? And for a bonus point, what sparkly drink mixer also contains quinine? If you think you know the answer, then you could win yourself a mud-powered clock and you'll be the envy of all of your friends. Now, the key to good health is clean water, but how do you actually disinfect the water when you can't inf- afford the expensive chemicals and filters that it would take to do that? Well, there's one man who might know the answer, and that's Cambridge University's Colin Humphreys, because he's found out how to make LEDs, in other words, light-emitting diodes, that can pump out ultraviolet light, which is capable of sterilising water. So earlier this week, I went down to his lab to find out how these new ultra-bright LEDs are made and how they work. I'm working on LEDs, and LEDs are everywhere. If you go in an aeroplane, the interior lights there are LEDs. Everlasting torches, those are LEDs. Um, looking to the future, the next BMW car being produced this year, the top-of-the-range headlamp will be an LED headlamp, and actually it's going to be twisting headlamp. You can look round corners. This is a red uh, rear bicycle light. Why are these good on bicycles? Because they are 30 times more efficient than old-fashioned rear bike lights. This means your batteries last 30 times as long. 
In fact, I've calculated you could close down eight power stations in the UK if we can fit LEDs in our homes and offices for white light. What's the difference between the LED that's powering this bike light and, say, the desk lamp I've got with a traditional filament bulb in it? The traditional filament bulb works because electricity passes through the filament, it heats it up until it's white hot, and that white light is, is the light given out by your filament. It's only 5% efficient, so you get 5% light out for 100% electrical energy. These are 50% efficient. LEDs, 10 times as efficient as light bulbs, hugely more efficient, and they stay cold. They don't get hot, so they don't waste energy by getting hot. And how they operate is you pass electricity through these, using a battery, for example, and this electricity produces carriers in the material. They're actually called electrons and holes. And when these carriers recombine, they give out the light. And that's how the light is emitted. It's quite a different process from a normal filament light bulb. Are they difficult to make? They require expensive equipment. And we're going to see in a moment some, some equipment. It costs about a million pounds, this equipment. And the reason is you actually grow them atomic layer by atomic layer. And you build them up like this at the same sort of rate as grass grows, all right, in your garden. I mean, you grow them really slower, layer by layer by layer. And the layers we have that emit the light here are very, very thin layers. They're called quantum wells. You could fit 50,000 quantum wells side by side in the width of a human hair. These are so thin, the electrical carriers can find each other in this confined space and that's why they emit such brilliant light. The original LEDs, they didn't have these quantum wells in and so they were dim. So they're very, very small, but what are the actual chemicals doing in there and how does it actually work to make the light? The basic chemical is a material called gallium nitride uh, which is a mixture of gallium atoms and nitrogen atoms and to vary the colour of the light, we add indium to this. And by mixing those, it's like making a cake or something, mixing all those elements together, you can go from the infrared through to red, through to blue, and then into an ultraviolet, a huge wavelength range. So should we go and take a look at this machine that does all this for you? In front of us here, there's this rather huge piece of equipment which fills the room completely, and this is the shower head reactor. When you take a shower at home, water is forced through these narrow tubes in the shower, so you get this wonderful sprinkle of water in your body. Here we have a shower head here where the gas is forced through thousands of holes in this shower head, and uh, we have two gases which are forced through, one of which contains nitrogen, the other which contains gallium. These gases hit a heated, it's heated to 1,000 degrees centigrade, pieces of sapphire two inches across, and the gallium and the nitrogen combine on the sapphire to form gallium nitride, and that's how we start the growth of these devices. So what will you do when you get this two-inch by two-inch sapphire coated with the gallium? Because obviously you don't make an LED that big. No, we don't. So that's just the start of the process. So we coat it with the gallium, we then cut it up, and we can get 10,000 LEDs from a single two-inch wafer. And in fact, we're about to go on a six-inch silicon wafer. We get up 100,000 LEDs from that, so we get lots of LEDs. Now, it's a bit noisy in here, Chris, so I suggest we go next door where it's a bit quieter. A major breakthrough is we can now make ultraviolet light from LEDs. That's really important for purifying water. Deep UV radiation destroys the nucleic acid in bacteria and in viruses, and so it stops them reproducing. It will also kill mosquito larvae and fungi and all these things. So if you're in a developing country, the water supply may be filthy. It would, if you drink it, give you awful diseases. So you have a water pipe in someone's house. On the inside of this pipe, you have UV LEDs. You can kill all the bugs, and the water is totally pure to drink, even though it looks awful. 
Why do you need an LED to do that? Because we already have UV lights, don't we? Yes. We already have mercury lamps, but they require mains electricity. They're big and they're expensive. These LEDs may cost about a pound each, and we can power them with solar cells. They only require four volts to power them, and they take very little power. So the idea is we'd have a little unit which has a solar cell on, maybe a battery that the solar cell charges, and, and the LED unit. So for maybe ten pounds, you can just purify the water supply, and it's no maintenance maintenance-free and energy-free. It's Colin Humphreys from Cambridge University's Materials Science with a new kind of LED that will make ultraviolet rays and he's hoping that he can use that technology to clean up water coming into people's houses and homes and thereby eliminate the infectious risk. Now, Mark, would that work for things like the schistosomes that we were talking about earlier, Bilharzia? Well, in principle, yes, because under experimental conditions you can show that if you do shine UV light at the cercaria, that's the free-living larvae uh, that penetrate humans, they, uh, the UV light will reduce the longevity of the cercaria. It affects their survival and you can irradiate cercaria with UV light and use it under experimental conditions as vaccines, especially in animals. It sounds absolutely brilliant. We've got a quick update on the teaser here. We're asking you what parasitic infection is treated with quinine and what sparkly drink mixer also contains quinine. We've had right answers from Rosemary in Ipswich, Pat in Norwich and Eric in Norwich as well. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. If you remember, we asked you this week to go and get some sugar lumps, crush them with a pair of pliers and look at the result in a very dark room. What do you find? Well, Henry's in Wistow. He reckons he knows the answer. Hi, Henry. Hi there. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Now, very briefly, if you do this experiment, what do you see? You see little tiny flashes of light. And why do you think you see that? Um, I don't don't know the um, uh, the mechanism. It's something called triboluminescence, but... um, I don't really know. It must be something to do with um, atomic bombs, I suppose, and, and, and cracking crystals. Well, thank you. Let's see if you're right. Stay on the line, Henry. Let's go back to that kitchen in Cottenham where Helen's there with Dave, Isaac and Thomas and see if you're right. Hello and welcome back to Cottenham where we have all been sitting in the dark for a good couple of minutes trying to get our eyes adjusted to not seeing any light at all. I have with me Dave and Isaac and Thomas. So, Dave, now we've been sitting in the dark all this time what are we going to do next well now i'm going to give isaac these this pair of pliers can you get them isaac yeah i can find your hand there it is okay now what you want to do, what i want you to do is find one of those lumps of sugar and crush it quite difficult to find can you find it there are you doing all right you see anything then yeah, yeah. what was that Thomas, did you, can you describe what we just saw there? It was just a very small flash. Yeah, we saw a sort of out of nothing, because I can't see anything at all right now, but there was a big flash, a little flash of light. Dave, why don't you have a couple of goes? It's very difficult scrabbling around in the dark trying to crush sugar, but we'll keep trying. Do you see that? Yeah. There we go. So, Isaac, what did you see then? Oh, and there's another one. Fantastic. What was that? Um, I just saw um, a flash of green light live where Dave can't cut the sugar fantastic so it sounds like your little prediction earlier of um that we're going to make the sugar glow has come true what do you reckon david we've done done as best we can now should we turn the lights back on i think it might be best yes okay let's see where we are what mess we've made with the sugar all over the table oh ow that hurts right okay fantastic so thomas once again do you want to just tell us what it was that we saw happening there what i saw was was the sugar went all green and 
Just that lump of sugar you crushed, it just went green, and you saw this flash of green. Excellent. So I don't know any ideas why this might be. I have absolutely no idea at all. I think we might have to go to to Dave. But do you have any idea, Thomas, what might be going on? No, I don't at all. <laughs> I think it's magic. What do you think, Isaac? I don't know either. No. Okay. So, Dave, can you tell us why is our sugar glowing when we crush it? Well, when you crush the sugar cubes, you actually break some of the crystals. When you break them, sometimes you get a bit of charge, a bit of positive charge on one side of the break, and a bit of negative charge on the other. And as you pull those apart, it increases the voltage lots. And so you've got enough voltage for it actually to spark in between the two. And what you actually, the light you see, is light from that spark. So, are you saying we're almost? Are we creating a mini lightning spark? Is that essentially what we're doing here? Yeah, that's exactly right. Very, very tiny and very, very weak. Okay, that's fantastic. Now, is there anything else we can see doing something similar like this? It's not producing the charge in quite the same way. But if you pull off your jumper very quickly in a dark room, it will you, you'll charge up the jumper compared to your hair, and it will spark back. And that's what you sometimes feel as a crack. You hear as crackles. Sometimes it hurts when that happens. So take your jumper off in a dark room, and you might get the same effect. Fantastic. So Thomas, what did you think of our experiment today? I just haven't seen anything like it at all before. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Do you think, uh, Isaac? Do you think you're going to go and show your school friends this new experiment? Yes, definitely. So we're going to all be sitting in dark classrooms and having a go at this ourselves. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much, Dave, for showing us some magic, I think, science. No, it's science, really. It really is true. If you didn't have a go already at home, do try, because it is fantastic. And, uh, yeah, brilliant. So thanks very much, Thomas and Isaac, for coming along to help us out. Thanks again to Dave. And we'll be here again next week for some more Kitchen Science. Thank you, guys. And well done. Our winner, Henry from Wistow. Hi, Henry. Hi there. You were right. Well done. Well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, and you were right about the... You, you were mentioning to me the business about when you tear open a sticky envelope, you can sometimes see that flash of light. Same principle. That's right, yeah. yeah. Well, well, I mean, I've seen it in, in, on packets of photographic paper in the darkroom, so my eyes were very light adapted, and I was very surprised when the first time it happened to see these little blue flashes. Well, science in action right in front of your eyes. Henry, thank you very much. Okay. Henry from Wister, who's won this week's Kitchen Science. Cat. Well, we're going to announce the winners on this week's teaser. Um, the winner of our teaser is Denise in Southminster. Southminster. Um, she has answered the question, which parasitic infection is treated with quinine? And for the bonus point, what sparkly drink mixer also contains quinine? The answer is malaria is treated traditionally with quinine. And you find it in my favourite tipple, tonic water, part of a gin and tonic. Uh, you can do another cool science thing with tonic water. Hold it up to UV light and it fluoresces. It looks so cool. And it's a kind of pale blue colour, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's lovely. And we've just had a very quick email here hear about the mobile phone debate from Ken he says I've heard that wearing nylon knickers can overheat and start a fire as well Over, well it depends what you're doing in those knickers I suppose and Mark very quick question for you this is about parasites it's uh, from Ed and Livy and they say how long would it take for a new parasite to evolve and as it evolved would it become more immune to our defences um, the short answer is it may take a very short time in fact because you may get one uh, an organism jumping from one species to another and that only requires a single maybe a genetic mutation to do so in order for it to survive in the new host it must already be able to evade immune responses and therefore that will also happen very quickly okay thank you for that mark we've got a very quick question for you alex this has come from john in colchester and he says if water is polluted by heavy metals if you passed a direct current between two plates would the heavy metals electroplate out of the water what do you think Ooh, cool, blimey. Um, God, I have to phone a phone on that one. I think heavy metals, we usually use iron exchange, so uh, the principle is probably quite correct. Um, 
Sounds like yeah, quite it, an energy costly way of doing it to it, me. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 wouldn't, it wouldn't be the, the first solution that we would go for. I think we'd probably go for a more physical uh, solution like filtration or something else like that. But, but the principle behind it is correct. Yeah, kind of iron exchange does work for heavy metals. Thanks very much, Alex. I've got a quick question here from Danny in Alaska. It says, hi, Naked Scientist. I've got a question for you about glacial silt. Where I live in Alaska, there's an inlet where the beaches are not made of sand or rocks, but glacial silt. Several years ago, a young woman and her new husband were riding all-terrain vehicles on the glacial silt beach when the tide began to come in. Her ATV became stuck in the silt, and when she got off the vehicle, she too became stuck. Firefighters and paramedics were called in, but nothing could be done to get her free. The best they could do was to give her a tube to breathe from as the water began to come in. They tried blasting the silt away from her legs with a sort of high-pressure spray hose, and they also tried digging and many other things, but nothing could be done, and the girl ended up perishing. What is it about that sort of substance, silt, that makes it so difficult to remove things? I've often wondered about it. Well, Danny, the answer is that in this case, the silt is behaving a bit like quicksand. And thanks to a researcher called Daniel Bonn, we now know a bit how quicksand works. He went on holiday to Iran and collected some samples from very big fields of quicksand that they have there. And he analysed them back in his lab in the Netherlands. Now, he found that in quicksand, there are four key ingredients. That's water, salt clay and sand or silk particles now the sand or the silk gets assembled into a sort of house of cards where there are big gaps between each of the houses of cards and they're all packed in with clay which acts like a sort of glue and holds them together but when you disturb the house of cards and and all it takes to do that is a very tiny change in force in fact he found that a pressure change of just one percent on the sand causes the whole thing to collapse the viscosity of it changes by a million fold That means that the house of cards made of sand will quite literally collapse. Now, the salt is really important here because what it does is makes the clay all stick to itself or flocculate, and so it aggregates into these lumps. The sand all sinks together into one big giant chunk of sand, and that, of course, very firmly glues in the body part that's sunk into it. The whole thing's very, very heavy, so it holds you stuck in very, very hard. And if you want to get someone or something out... As Daniel Bonn has calculated, you'd need to pull on them with the force needed to lift the average family car to pull someone out of a patch of quicksand. So the only way you can get out, he says, is by making very small circles with the trapped body part, and this pushes water back in amongst the sand particles and helps to resuspend them. And this may help to rebuild that metaphorical house of cards, which, which means you'll be easier to remove. But the force you'd need to pull someone out if you just got hold of them and gave them a good yank could effectively pull their legs off. So I hope that answers the question for you, Danny. That's it for this week. Thank you very much to Alex McKee, Mark Booth, Colin Humphreys, Dr. Cat, Holly Barkley and Sabina Miknovich, who've all helped with this week's show. Next time, we'll be unwrapping the mysteries of Peruvian mummies and hearing how scientists are able to diagnose what sorts of diseases they died from. We'll also be finding out how animals were first domesticated and where our pigs, chickens, cows and sheep of today all come from. So if you have any questions on that or any general science questions, then please send them to me now, chris at nakedscientist.com. And please also send us any feedback or if you just want to say hi, we'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, do give the Nature Podcast a listen. That's at nature.com forward slash nature forward slash podcast. There's more cutting edge science there. And if you fancy asking or answering some science questions on any subject, then do drop into our forum at nakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Thanks once again for listening. I hope you'll join us for more Naked Science next week. Take care. Goodbye. Goodbye.